Hello, Heal listeners. Welcome to season seven. Before we dive into our regular format, the first few episodes of this season are a special three-part series I call The Dad Sessions. Just two weeks after my father's death, Kendra and I sat down and began recording my experience of his diagnosis, the three and a half weeks being with him as he died, and his death, and the new, very challenging world of grief I've experienced since. A few days before his passing, I was alone with my dad as he slept. In a moment, he came to and said very clearly, tell them what happened. It was not angry or challenging, more matter of fact, like it just needs to be so. So here we are telling you what happened. I'd also recorded some conversations with my dad the few weeks before he died, and we will be including some of those clips here. You'll get to hear his voice, my own, my sister's, and that of my mother. It is an honor to include him here in these episodes and have his voice heard and his perspective known as he faced the final days of his own life. After all, this is ultimately about him. He should have a say. I couldn't have been more amazed at how quickly my strength and stamina and interest dwindled from January through March. It was like I never experienced anything like that before in my life. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, I talk with Kendra about the five-month process it took to diagnose my father with pancreatic cancer. From a single minor stroke to the unforgettable words of his oncologist, you have stage four cancer, was a journey of life that will shape me forever. Today, I'm your guest, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Do you feel ready to talk about it? (laughs) I do actually. And I want to really create for the listeners, like this had come up for me throughout the entire process. Kendra and I had actually talked about doing one interview while my dad was in the process of dying, which we didn't know how long it was going to be, could be months and another one after he passed and things moved quickly enough. It was 24 days from diagnosis to death that, that just didn't work out slash seem appropriate at the time. And it has only been two weeks and I've thought about, you know, but it's all that cultural stuff. Like should I, what will people think if I talk about it? You know, all and it's like, but it is right there for me. Yeah. And one of the things, one of 10,000 things I've gotten out of being with my dad through diagnosis, dying and death, I didn't talk about death like at all. And I'm a doctor. <laughs> like, I mean, it's at least sort of related into right. my field and like, I, I mean, I, people have had a few friends commit suicide. I have definitely been present to none of them have hit like this with a parent, but I actually realized I don't. And I know culturally we mostly don't, but literally I don't, I can, I can probably count on one hand how many times I've like sat around and had a conversation about actual death. The interesting thing about that is I had a friend who's lost her son. And she said that she thinks the only people who are uncomfortable talking about death are those who haven't experienced it. And that it comes more from a place of like selfish anxiety about like, well, I don't know what to say. Like you're making me feel weird because I don't know how to respond to you. And I don't know if this will, if this is true for you or not, but she, you know, kind of has regularly said, that it never makes her uncomfortable to talk about her son and his, and his death. That that is like part of healing for her is being able to talk about it. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of where I am right now is like, haven't done a ton of talking about it just this Sunday, a couple of days ago, I declared like, now that's what I need to do is, you know, talk about my dad talk about the actual, what happened being communication more. And I could feel the 
emotional constipation starting to pent up some. And sometimes there aren't what I've definitely realized in this process is how limited our language is. Like there are so many experiences I've had in the last six weeks that I, there's not a word in the English language I can get close. And, but I do, I, I am ready. And I do think it's part of my healing process and also a massive contribution. So for the listeners, I think, you know, we're going to break this into three separate like talking points, mostly three phases of your experience, the diagnosis, the dying and the death. And so let's start by talking about the diagnosis. Do you want to just tell me? It was a bit. Tell me the story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what Um, happened. And, you know, inside of my intention for heal in sharing, you know, what does it really look like to heal? What does it mean to heal? And also for this podcast in particular is I really do hope that some of this lands with people's ears, that it makes a difference for them in whatever crisis of working inside of the conventional medical system. And I can really say the medical system as a whole, I mean, I didn't, we didn't have the opportunity or go after, I shouldn't say didn't have the opportunity. My dad and mom and where we were at, we weren't having conversations about like flying him to Mexico or going to other countries or being seen by people that might have a lot more distinction around the process he was going through. But the, what happened was I'm pretty sure just about December 1st of last year, my dad had a stroke in the basilar artery at the back of his head. So it was the ocular region. And what he noticed was that he had a blind spot in each eye, exactly in the same spot bilaterally. And when he looked at something directly, he couldn't see it, but his peripheral vision was intact. And so if he looked at the digital clock, he couldn't read the clock, but if he looked next to it, he could kind of make out the numbers. If he looked right at your face, He couldn't actually see the specifics, but if he looked near you, he could. And that in and of itself was a little bit of a, they thought it was macular degeneration. And I'm going to totally pat one on the back for myself. And thank you, Dr. Tom and Dr. Bettenberg for all of your amazing training of my diagnostics, because I was like, this can't be macular degeneration. It's perfectly bilateral in both eyes. And anything that's perfectly bilateral in both eyes is coming from the brain, not from the eyeballs themselves. And macular degeneration happens inside the eyeballs. Yeah. And, and still, you know, I actually, one of the things I've gotten out of this whole process is a boatload more confidence for my instincts as a physician, because this happened on several occasions through the diagnosis process. But at that point I did say, yeah, it could be in your eyeball. It also could be a stroke and we need to be responsible for that. He ended up being seen by a retinal specialist that then once that happened said, yeah, no, this is definitely a stroke. So that was it though. It was some, some visual impacts. And my dad had a history of atrial fibrillation, which is a murmur in the heart. The heart doesn't beat exactly correctly. And he'd had a very normal progression of it. He had his first time with atrial fibrillation in about the year 2000, we were actually in Moab and he got too hot and too dehydrated and his heart kind of decompensated a little and he went to the emergency room. And then there's a chem drug that they can give you that forces the body to convert. And his heart went back into a normal rhythm and he was fine. Over 20 years from 2000 to 2020, he had more and more incidences where his heart would go out of rhythm. Sometimes it would go back on its own and sometimes it needed chemical conversion. And then there was a point two years ago where he went into atrial fibrillation and stayed that way. And even with the chemical intervention, they couldn't get his heart to convert back to a normal rhythm. We did some work on his emotional heart, energetic heart, and his electrolytes and things for about nine months. And he did yoga and he worked with some local practitioners and he decreased the symptoms dramatically, but he wasn't able to get it to completely normalize. And he chose to do ablation where they go in and they cauterize as close to wherever the nerve root is, as they can guess. And it's like 60% successful the first time. And it's like 99% or eight, 98% successful when they go in for a second time, he got it. They got it on the first try. The reason this is relevant is because there is a conversation that even after somebody doesn't have atrial fibrillation anymore, they could still throw a clot out of their heart. It's sort of like there's blood that can stick in certain places. And it's possible even years later that there's a risk factor. Now, here's the interesting thing about diagnosing strokes. 
the way you diagnose a stroke is with an MRI, you can actually see the brain tissue that's died from where the blood supply got cut off. If it's an infarct, which is where there's literally a clot that clogs an artery or clogs a capillary, or you can have a hemorrhagic stroke where something opens up and it bleeds out and the blood causes the destruction of the brain tissue. We then come to conclusions where we think the strokes came from, but there's no fact. You can't know for sure where the clot came from. So we do this sort of like investigative backtracking. And the thing about this is, is that it's very common to just kind of attribute it to something because it's logical, but that doesn't make it true. So we attributed his first stroke to a clot thrown from the atrial fibrillation that he hadn't had for the last two years, because that's statistically seen as that can happen. But then in January, he starts to actually have some decompensation mentally. He's having difficulty with his speech and his words and his memory. And he also has had this deep fatigue it was kind of there and then it got increasing. And this part's a little shady for me because even for my dad, like up until this point, the man had had colds and that's it. He never got COVID. He had pneumonia once. Like wow. nothing, his entire yeah, healthy life. Guy. You'd never, I mean, he was considered a risk for heart issues. His dad died at the age of 51 when his, when he was 21, his dad was 51 of a heart attack and his mom had a major stroke. So there was this like family history and that's what we'd all chalked. We were like, dad's going to croak of, you know, he's going to one night have a heart attack and that'll be that. Did not see cancer, let alone stage four pancreatic cancer. That was just so far off of our radar and our thinking. So to get back on the track here, you know, in January, there started to be these other symptoms happening. And, and like I said, it's a little foggy because even for my dad, like he didn't have a lot of practice articulating how he felt. And actually, that was one of the things that drove my mom and I crazy from January, February, March was like, Bob, what does that feel like? And he's like, I don't know, painful. <laughs> We're like, thanks. Can we get a little more specific? More you know? descriptive. Like, is it achy? Is it sharp? Is it stingy? Does it, re-? you know, and like, and I realized after many months of being frustrated that he just had never had to really think about it that much. So he got better over time, but initially it was like very vague, but the vague symptoms started to come out of, he was having some back pain kind of more. He actually talked more about his hips and it was keeping him up at night. And then he was having this kind of mental fog confusion, which we quickly figured out after he went back into the emergency room that he had had eight focal strokes in one shot. So that's eight strokes in different areas. It was in one region of his brain, but they're not in one exact spot. So it's like, I don't know, the equivalent of shotgun where you get the pepper spray of everything that also now, when I look back over my shoulder, I can see that's interesting because that is kind of atypical stroke behavior if it was coming from a cardiac. So now they're starting to say, this doesn't make sense that he would have thrown eight individual small fragmented clots out of his heart from the atrial fibrillation. Like that doesn't make sense anymore. So now we really needed to be very curious about why was his blood hypercoagulable? Why was there clots being formed so easily? Another piece of the information, and I'm giving this level of detail literally for people to kind of be able to track through in their own worlds, is he was on a blood thinner and he was on a statin because of the atrial fibrillation history. So again, it's not impossible, but it's uncommon for people who are already on a blood thinner to prevent strokes to still have a stroke. And all of these pieces, which now, of course, right, hindsight is 2020, we can connect all the dots. But at the time it was super confusing. And what we were starting to see is this kind of sense of not full-blown depression, but this like decreased sense of well-being, which was very unusual for my dad, borderline insomnia. He, He like wasn't getting much more than an hour or two of sleep at any one time, which also very unusual for my dad. My dad, it was an engineer and literally you could run a clock off of him. Like he got tired at the same time every night. He slept eight, eight and a half hours every night. He ate three meals. He was a very routine oriented guy in so many ways. And actually 
we actually started a file when he was, once he was diagnosed, he was at home. We wrote a file of dadisms, things that he would say (laughs) through the process. And some of them just cracked us up. And there was one morning about two weeks before he died, I was making him breakfast and he had started to like cheesy eggs is what we called them. And it was like a wet scrambled egg with a little bit of onion in it and then cheddar cheese on top. And at this point we were not restricting his diet in any way. It was like, if we could get calories in him, he lost likely over 45 pounds from January until he died. And, and which again was 24 days, right? Well, that was that the, the weight loss was over the course of once there was bone metastases, which was the hip pain, we didn't know that that was pancreatic Mm, cancer spreading mm -hmm. to his bones. You know, that was the other clue was from Christmas time to March, he had lost 25 pounds. So over three, and this is a man whose weight was super steady. He was 160, 165 pounds. That was it. He, he was never overweight. He was fit. He walked three, four miles at a time, three or four times a week. He would bike for 20 miles at a time. He was generally active. He was still sailing. Like, like there was nothing. And then he loses 25 pounds. And interestingly enough, that still didn't strongly alert the physicians. Like there was, there was this mounting case and this was the part like, and I'm look, what I'm going to say is my dad had some of the best physicians and, and these people as individuals are extraordinary souls. I have no blame. I have no regrets about this process. There's something bigger though. We have a tendency to not talk about what didn't work because we want to like, oh, but the doctors were so great and they didn't, oh, and they did their best, but then we don't deal with it. And this is one of those differences between the airline industry and the medical industry In the airline industry. If a freaking airplane falls out of the sky, we set aside, oh, but I really love that pilot. And we analyze what worked, what didn't work. What was, what was the issue? You know, we go through it. That's one of the big failures in medicine is we are not doing that kind of work to look back over. So I just want to say like my, we, we are in an amazing medical system here in Rochester, New York. And my mom and I were major advocates and we pushed things to go as fast as we possibly could get them to go. And it still felt like a snail's crawl. And when I look back over it, there's so many places where it's like, my dad had had a low grade anemia over the last three or four years that was unexplained. And then in the last year, his blood glucose levels started to go up, but not a lot. They were like getting to like a hundred, 110. Turns out these are all the subtle signs of pancreatic cancer. Now I want to say everybody out there who's got a little bit of anemia and they notice their blood glucose levels are going up does not mean you have cancer. The problem is, is that every doctor looked at my dad's labs. They didn't look at my dad. They looked at the numbers on the sheet and they compared them to the normal reference ranges. So what we heard a thousand times was, well, I mean, it's a little out of range, but it's not that, I mean, it's not like that bad or actually like the, one of the red flags for me, and I'm a little foggy on my details here because I haven't gone back and looked at all since there's been a little bit of other things going on, but I want to say it was from December to January. I saw his white blood cell count going up. Now they weren't yet out of range. It went from like normal level of 6.5 to 9.0 and the top of the range was 11, but the body doesn't make extra white blood cells for no reason. Right. Something was going on. And then by I think February or March, for sure, his numbers had hit 11 and were now out of range. And then we started to see further deep. Well, that was because he literally had cancer in his bone marrow and it was now throwing off and cancer is inflammatory. So the immune system was trying to mount the white blood cells to deal with the inflammation from the cancer. Now, the other thing I also want to put in here is even if somehow we'd had like the Doogie Hauser of doctors or Dr. House was like one of them who looked at my dad's case in January and said, bam, you have cancer. He would have still died. Yeah. This would have had to have been worked out at least a year ago, if not before that. And, and another place, and I will admit to being a little soapboxy about this, but I think it's the soapboxes that has us take a stand to make change. 
I can't tell you the number of times I've heard from people in the medical industry and in general, just say, oh yeah, pancreatic cancer is just so hard to diagnose. I've heard that too. And they say it like that explains everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they like almost make jokes about it. It's like referred to as the widow maker. Yeah. And it's a no joke cancer. Right. Let's remind ourselves we've put men and women on the moon. We've touched the sun. We've completely transformed the world of technology. I mean, we've done it's. I choose to not believe that it's impossible to figure these problems out. Right. And I know pancreatic cancer has become personal to me and that there are hundreds of other versions of this in other cancers in particular, and in certain very fast moving terminal illnesses that many, 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 many people could also say, yeah. And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I'm not even going to get into like, I'm not going to chalk it up either to like, oh, big pharma just wants to make money. I don't, it's not that simple, but whatever we've been doing and the way we've been studying chemotherapy and not studying the root causes of cancer and, and that, that it's like, well, we'll just wait till the end product is there and hope we can treat it versus dealing with, cause when I look back and it's interesting, cause at one point I didn't know I was going to do this because Googling illnesses is never really like a great thing to do, especially in the middle of it, but it had been about two weeks and there was a lot of time. I mean, there was a lot of busyness, but there was a lot of time. There were many hours. I was just sitting in my dad's room with him while he slept or journeyed. That's another one of those where like, we don't have language. Cause I don't think he was sleeping the whole time. He was doing a lot of things, but sleeping was not the only thing he was doing. But there were times where I was just hanging out in there for several hours being quiet with him. And one time I Googled diagnosing pancreatic cancer and if you go to Google images, there's like 101 little infograms on the signs. And I could just see it like yeah. a new level of depression, lack of interest in doing things they'd re- re- you know, used to like to do, muscle wasting, where my dad's weight hadn't changed over the last couple of years until he started really rapidly losing weight. He'd always been about 160, 165 pounds but his muscle mass changed. And I actually can now remember last summer on the sailboat, noticing his arms were considerably smaller than they used to be. And my mom even commented that he really had no butt and his pants hung different. We actually literally joked that he had like old man pants now and that they were like kind of falling in, in the whole thing. And even in my world was like, yeah, he's 75, he's 76. This is like, this is what old men look like, you know, but when you actually take it into context of this individual and you look at the rate of change, he had muscle and then he didn't, it was actually not over an extended period of time. It was in a year or so. And there's actually good evidence and research out there that says, you know, we need alternatives to measuring body mass index, BMI all the time. And one of them is actually straight up just using a tape measure and measuring the biceps and your thighs. And it's, you can have people's weight do all kinds of different things, but if you actually can track their muscles, especially in geriatric populations, that tells you a lot more information than just their numeric weight. Yeah. Anyways. Interesting. So there's all these pieces, right? So he had the eight focal strokes in January. We got sent to a neurologist to start looking into the changes in his memory. He would repeat himself in conversations. He would literally completely forget things that we just talked about. And my dad was, like I said, he was a software engineer. He ran his own company for 36 years. He was tactical. A sharp guy. And we hadn't seen any cognitive decline at all. This happened very suddenly. Now strokes kind of explained it and the focal strokes were in an area that like short-term memory could have been impacted. So we go to the neurologist and it was actually the neurologist that was the first person who said cancer. So it was February 9th and we had an hour long visit with him and I was on the visit via Skype or zoom. And he, at the very end, after saying, I don't see any issues from a neurology standpoint, I got to refer you back to your primary care physician 
kind of, there's nothing more for me to do with you basically. Cause my dad had been so poked and prodded at this point with all kinds of testing done. And then he said, I hate to be the one to bring this up, but I have seen this kind of stroke activity in cancer because cancer is one of the things it, like I said, it's very inflammatory. It can cause the hypercoagulability of the blood that allows that. So now we know, looking back, the strokes were the first major sign that my dad had cancer. It still so was, was it several months after that. That you started getting tested, that he started getting tested for that? That would have been great, but no, that took two more months. <laughs> so, yeah. And again, this is where it's like, we moved as fast as this. And some of it wasn't just the doctors. Some of it was my dad. He is an eternal optimist. And one of the things I, I kind of knew this about him, but I discovered it to a whole nother level is how unbelievably strong and determined my dad is. His capacities, one of the things that had everybody fooled was he kept talking about this hip pain that eventually started to, to expand. And he talked about it going down his legs and then it was getting into his shoulders. But he'd talk about it the way some people talk about like a minor sprained ankle. And so right. the man sitting in front of you did not occur like a man in gripping pain from bone metastases who's dying of cancer. And he, he did, my mom used to get so frustrated that she felt like he diminished things and maybe he diminished them. But I actually think some of it was, it was literally his experience. Like when we, right. It wasn't conscious downplaying. I don't, I don't know. Like, this is where we're like, "Ah," you know, and he did have a bit of like, well, that's not too big of a problem. And I can just like, you know, and he also, when we look back, it took us a while to figure this out. There were places where we were like, dad, this is a big deal. Like this is whatever's going on is serious. And like, it's not that he didn't take it seriously, but there, I really think there was, and you know, dad's not here to defend himself right now. So, but I really think that there was this place in my dad that he hadn't ever dealt with chronic illness. He really had barely dealt with major acute illnesses. And so because of that, he kind of thought whatever he was dealing with, like at some point he'd just get over it, like that it would just sort of disappear and he'd be better. That's not so much the case this time. So I think there was a place where, you know, and mom and I were at most, mom was at all of his appointments and I was at most of them that I could get to, you know, we would kind of drill in a little bit more, but there was still this process of getting back to his primary care physician. So that was February to March. And then I was on that, I was at that appointment and that appointment, I'm the one who asked for a PSA test for it possibly being prostate cancer. And then that's like a whole nother, we don't need to get into a big conversation about it, but generally speaking, they've way turned down doing a lot of screening for prostate cancer because what they actually find is that close to 70% of all men, when they die, have some sort of prostate cancer in their body, but it's never causes disease of any major issue. Like it doesn't really impact their quality of life. We think now I got a lot of questions about this, but these are the statistics and what they were finding is that they were doing all the testing and they were going after it. And of course, when people hear they have cancer, they want it treated and the treatments were impacting their life way worse than the actual cancer. And I get it. It is actually very hard to know you have cancer in your body and not want to do something about it. And in conventional medicine to do something about it is radiation, chemo, or surgery. Now we could have a whole nother show about we should right. still be screening for it and we should still be doing something about it. What we should be doing about it is like plant-based diets and detoxification, Educating and, you know, and, but yeah. that's a different podcast. So they weren't thrilled about running a PSA test on my dad. But my point was, I was like, look, the neurologist said cancer. He has pain in his hips. It's in this region. He's losing weight. He's got these new markers on his blood. We should look for cancer. And there's a double-sided thing that happens here. One is you have the filter of the actual experience of the doctor you're talking to, but you also have that they're trained that they can't 
ask for certain tests unless the test is warranted and it has to be for the insurance to pay for it. And the insurance companies only will have it be warranted if certain metrics in the labs have been met. Well, my dad didn't meet any of those. So the doctors don't have free license to go, you know what? I really think we are going to go ahead and do these major tests. Like, so we had to go do the next level of tests and then those had to come back. And then we had to have the next conversation and then we had to have the next conversation. So we did the next level of tests and they came back as worse than they were before, but still quote, not that bad. And it was things like his white blood cell count was increasing and his red blood cell count was going down and he was becoming more anemic. And the PSA came back just one point out of range and I wasn't concerned about it, but you know, I'm glad that we did the test. And then we started looking for other causes of his pain. Was it autoimmune? Was it myalgic? There's this thing called polymyalgia rheumatica. That's an inflammatory condition that can cause pain in the hips and shoulders And I actually went and did a consult with my naturopathic mentor and gave him my dad's entire case. And he's the one who said, you should look for polymyalgia rheumatica. And there's some kind of generalized, but basic blood tests that you do for that. And Dr. Valls, my dad's primary care physician actually was on board with that. And I mean, he was so willing to work with us and there's, and he's a brilliant man. It's, and I don't, I don't even know how he thinks or feels about any of this, but I would chalk more of this up to the training and the constraints that the insurance companies put on what's considered medically necessary and what's not, that was more what slowed this process down and what had it go the way it did. So then it's March and my dad has another stroke. So this was kind of the tipping point. This was like, okay, hold on. So that point he goes into the emergency room because we had been well-trained that if there was any stroke activity to send him in and he spends three days in the emergency room. And then it was interesting because it was like one doctor would come in and they really be like, we've got to get to the bottom of this anemia. And nobody had said that yet. It's March. And I was like, thank God somebody's finally, cause I, I mean, my naturopathic self over here has been like, what about his blood markers? What about his blood markers? Everyone was focused on the stroke. But now we had somebody saying, we got to get to the bottom of anemia. And then they like, I don't know what happened. They like went on their weekend and someone else showed up and like that conversation just disappeared. And then it was like, okay, we got to get them in for the MRI for the stroke, which didn't happen for three days, by the way, which was very interesting. And I don't actually remember this is, this is definitely like things are starting to get stressful for me. And I know I was in a bit. And we were really like dad's super sick at this point, like three. I mean, I was, we were all very concerned. So that was when we had just the week before had a conversation about sending my dad to the cancer center in Rochester and getting a workup by the hematologist, the blood cancer doctors, because maybe there was like uh, a lymphoma or Hodgkin's of some sort that was actually what was going on. Like there was now a present inquiry into cancer. This is my experience. My experience was the neurologist said cancer. And for two months, the game was prove it's not cancer by doing everything else. And it was like, everything had to be ruled out first before we could go there. And again, this is the hard part. Like my mom and I have been over this conversation extensively in our hearts. There's been a place of, okay, what if? What if in February we'd sent him straight to the cancer center and he had been diagnosed in February? Pretty sure he still would have died. I mean, pancreatic cancer already in his bones. He definitely would have, right? And then we started to play out what might've life been like. It's actually more likely that he would have been recommended to do chemotherapy. And then you got to deal with that. And it's and not the, all the side effects in life from chemotherapy. only way and... it goes, but especially with already metastasized pancreatic cancer, because we knew he had bone pain. So they would have discovered it in the bones. They would have discovered the pancreatic cancer, probably the same way that they did when they did in April. But 
we could have gone through two or three months of chemo and my dad's system, either a would have not been able to handle it at all. And he would have just been super sick and miserable the last couple of months of his life. B it maybe would have bought us some more time. Like maybe he would have lived to June or July, but you would have that cost of the experience. And then there's also a real likely cancer or sorry, chemotherapy is a very energy depleting, challenging thing to go through. Yeah. So there's just as likely the possibility would have sped the whole timeline up. And we also would have been living in the conversation. Dad's dying. And we didn't have to live in that conversation. We got to just be in life. We got to have, I mean, we were doing all this, <laughs> but yeah. it wasn't quite the same, you know? And, and so I don't know, that's that world of like, I don't know what have been, been different. And, and this is where I do, and I appreciate everyone's listening. I know I've been doing a lot of talking through this, but, you know, from there, he's at the hospital. We were hoping that would expedite him being able to get into see the doctors at the cancer center. I can't remember the exact timeline, but pretty soon after that, we did get the referrals. They had to do, they had to do more pre-blood work, the same blood work that had been done, but now the cancer center had to do it. Like every time you changed units, they needed to run their own tests. And then they had to have it in order to have the insurance qualify for the next test that they would need to order. I mean, it was it very interesting. My, I mean, my dad had anemia. I'm like, with all these tests, they're going to have to do a blood transfusion just to resupply his system. But that's not actually true. It just felt like it. And so then they had to go back in. So then we had to get the test done before we could get the thing. And then there was a whole thing about scheduling and God, like there were times where we would get scheduled for something like two months out. And at this point we were pretty clear. We're like, we don't think he's going to live much more than two months the way this is going. Like there was a And I can't remember exactly when it was, but when it, it was right around this time when he was in the emergency room in March, we started to kind of just confront the math that he'd lost almost 30 pounds and his body was decompensating. And this was where my training as a physician started to kick in, where there was a reality I hadn't been willing to face yet. This is what his body had done in the last three months if he keeps doing exactly what he's been doing with no interventions to change the trajectory in another three months, there won't be any of him left. And that was right. The turning point for me beginning to let in the conversation, dad's dying. And I remember I could say it conceptually, but it was not, I had not let it all the way in. It was like this thought. It was a, it was a conversation I could repeat but it hadn't, I wasn't embodying it. That's for sure. But that was sort of the tipping point in the conversation. So then he'd get scheduled for a test or a procedure or something months out. Now it turns out, and this is good information for people. And this isn't always the case, but often the way that the medical system here worked, they had to get you on the books to be able to reschedule you earlier. So it was like this, like we have to fit you in to the spot that's actually open. And then once you're in the system, we have the ability to rework things and prioritize your case and shift it around, which I just, that's just how I didn't even know that's how it works. So we had several times where there were full-blown heart attacks where we were like, what do you mean? You can't see him until July. Right. And then they'd be like, Oh, actually they'd call us back like two days later and be like, we can have them in on Tuesday. And we were like, how did we go from July to Tuesday? I now know that's a thing that commonly is done. It happened to us multiple times through this process. So he went to the hematology, oncology, hematologist, ontologist, hematologist. It's a mouthful. We've got so many acronyms and ologies now at this point, you know? Oh man, I can't even imagine. And she ran some more blood work and then they did a bone marrow biopsy. And once we got the results of the bone marrow biopsy back, she saw digestive cells in his bones. That's not where they're supposed to be. And so that's how we knew it was actually not a primary cancer coming from the bones itself. It was a metastatic, you know, metastases from somewhere else. And while the, the cell types couldn't be determined exactly where their origins were from, she was pretty sure 
it was either pancreatic or bile duct, both of which are known to be very aggressive and very likely terminal. And so we, we heard that again, even, and there's another conversation here about the language and the way doctors would present things to us. And I don't have a, like that there's a right way or a wrong way per se. Cause of course every patient is different and every family is different, but I was kind of amazed the extent to which things were not said in a clear way. Now I also get, I'm used to being very direct and I can handle direct communication and I prefer it. And so I can get that other people would think that doctors are being complete assholes if they're saying things in a particular way. And that's a place where like, we literally say that this is our care team to take care of people. And we don't train nurses, doctors, care staff in communication skills. Which is such a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. My... I want to stay on topic, but both my husband and my dad were, you know, did emergency medicine and they talked about all the times that they would have to tell somebody that their loved one is dead. And both of them talked about that being like such a huge stressor because they had no training to talk about anything. Yeah. They had the medical training, but for delivering news about whatever medical situations at hand being such a big point of caring for the patient and their family. It does blow my mind that they don't have like the better tools around how to talk about those things. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it'd be hard. Cause like you said, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who want to hear that more sensitively, but I also think that information is an asset Mm -hmm. And you don't want to, you don't want to go so far into sensitivity that you lack clarity. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that can be a really hard place. I imagine for you guys, that was when you're just wanting to understand what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, I, (laughs) I want to say, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers, but it's probably too late for that. But I suspect there's a a decent amount of it that is unfortunately grounded in the litigious nature of it, of of all the things doctors are not allowed to say, or they can't say, or they can't make claims about, or we can't be positive, or we can't be held account for. And and then there's a real living, breathing human being that wants to be able to just express themselves to these patients and they can't. So like, I don't even have it as like, it's definitely not a, it's the doctor's fault. It's not, there's just something bigger here again. There's not like the support structure for that to be a place where the medical industry is excelling. Yeah. So there were these places where there'd be these conversations where like a whole communication would kind of fly by us, but then you'd have to really like, okay, well, you know, and, and I have a medical degree, so I can only imagine, I mean, I was doing a lot of translation and deciphering. I mean, there was actually, my sister and I were driving back from Pittsburgh to Rochester on our way here. This was now between the hematology oncology appointment and the gastro oncology appointment, which is when we did find out he had pancreatic cancer for sure. And they were about a week apart. We were driving back from Pittsburgh to Rochester to be here. My sister literally was like, okay, can you explain like the entire blood count lab? Because I don't understand any, like, I mean, I've been listening and I kind of get it and I know dad has anemia and I know he has more, but I don't really know what any of that means. So for like an hour on the drive, I literally gave her like the lab diagnosis lecture on this is what we do when we count red blood cells. And this is what hemoglobin means. And this is what hematocrit means. And this is what white blood cell counts mean. And this is the percentage versus the absolute. Like I walked through the entire complete blood count lab test that gets done all the time. So she understood what was going on with my dad. And then there were other times where similarly, we talked about like, well, why is cancer so destructive? And some of it is because, so cancer cells are normal, naturally occurring cells of your own human body that have gone rogue and they can't die or they don't die easily. And all other cells actually have a programmed natural death in them. And they will at some point end their lives and turn over and get new, new cells around so that there's a natural turnover. Well, that wasn't happening with cancer cells. 
And so cancer cells will do multiple things that become problematic. One is they take up space so they can physically put pressure on other things and they can squeeze other organs into small spaces where then they're not able to do their job. Like stomach cancer, the tumor itself starts to take up space in your stomach and you don't have room for food and digestion, but they also can produce hormones or chemicals of the cell type that they are. So thyroid cancer can produce more thyroid hormone. Pancreatic cancer can either produce excess, but actually more commonly, it doesn't allow enough insulin to be produced, which is thus why we saw my dad's blood mm. levels changing, glucose levels mm -hmm. changing, and it can impact your body's ability to make enough digestive enzymes to actually absorb your food. Cancers are also very greedy. They consume a lot of energy resources, oxygen, and nutrition. They also make their own blood system. So they start something called angiogenesis. They start creating their own blood network so that they can get even more of those nutrients, oxygen, and resources. So not only will they sometimes produce things that become imbalanced into the body, they consume a lot of resources and they take up physical space. And that's what starts to become problematic at those stages. So I got to explain all of that, you know, and I'm like, I can't imagine walking this path without that. I know how hard it was to walk the path with it, but that was plenty. So my sister and I drive home and I give her the update on the whole complete blood count, what all the things mean. And even my dad, I mean, I think at this point, my mom, my sister and I were all, I will put it this way, quite concerned. My dad had a very significant and major cancer. There was still though this, and I'm not an oncologist. I don't know, like how close to death can you get and get it turned around? Like how bad does it look before somebody goes into chemo and surgery right. and they all get like, I, I, that's where I was like, I don't. And we didn't know if it was, you know, stage two or stage four. And that has to do with, is the cancer contained in its own space or has it started to spread all over the body, you know? And, and so there was a, an air of optimism and this is so tough. Cause it's not like I want to live my life terrified and thinking the worst, but it didn't really hit until that was, that was Monday. We drove back. And on Wednesday, he had the appointment with the gastro oncologist and that talk about communication. Here's a man who's never met my dad. He just got brought in. He sees my dad's CT scan. He sees the darkening around the tail of the pancreas. He sees the spots on my dad's liver. And we know from the bone marrow biopsy, there's cancer in his bones. And in a one hour consult, he's got to find his way through presenting the findings and communicating in some humane way. You have stage four terminal pancreatic cancer with an undeterminate amount of time to live somewhere between two and four months. But honestly, I'm guessing, and we maybe could do some palliative chemotherapy, but it's at a huge cost to your body. And he said everything in the most PC way he possibly could. And I actually was so impressed with who this man is. He also, without going into details, let us know this was not the first time he'd had that conversation today. Like he, ha I mean, and like, I just can't even, Oh man, I can't even, but that it really wasn't until that. And this is that, like we did a, a you know, we did a podcast with Guy Maytall on the power of diagnosis. It wasn't really until the doctor declared it and said, this is what's so that it became real for us. And that was April 27th. Wow. What a journey even just to get to that point. And, you know, I mean, I, you and I like talk business a lot and life occasionally, but I had no idea. And That just seems like such a crazy experience to go from, you know, concern that you're trying to balance with optimism and the frustration of not getting answers and watching your father not improve to getting an answer you weren't hoping for. 
Before we move on to talking about what the dying process was like, I want to hear a little bit about, if you want to share, what that news felt like to receive for you and for your dad and your mom. I think, you know, it's interesting because I can like barely remember it. I remember having to go upstairs and tell my sister because she wasn't able to be on the call with us. I think there's a slightly more correct way of saying this, but in what we now know when people deal with trauma or, you know, major incidences in their life, there's fight, fight or flight is what we often talk about, but we actually are aware that there's fight, flight, or freeze. I think there's actually a better way that they say freeze and I can't come up with it right now. So one of the things in the world of, of the importance of self-reflection and knowing things about yourself was like, I happen to already know that my trauma response is freeze. And I think the knowing of that allowed me to not make myself wrong in a lot of ways that I could have through this process. Like even, even just now, like the last 40 minutes, you guys have been listening to me say all this. And, and when, (laughs) before dad died, early on when my friends would reach out or, and ask me, you know, what's happening, how's it going? I could rattle off all the clinical, all the medical. I could just, you know, cause I'm, it's, it's my world. I'm, I'm, you know, and, and some of them lovingly would stop me and go, yeah, I got all that. How are you? And I would burst into tears or whatever, or not be able to answer the question at all. And there was a place where it was easier. Now I am very grateful for the 15 years of transformational education and the three years of plant medicine ceremonies and, and the parents I was raised by and my background of mindfulness and awareness, you know, predominantly through Buddhism, but, but just mindfulness period that allowed me to be able to traffic through these spaces the way I could. And the, my dad, I saw it in him and my mom and my sister, like how we all navigated this together completely on the shoulders of all the work that we'd all been doing over the last 42 years since I was born and my parents got together and whatever came before that. So there was a big part of hearing the diagnosis that at that point, it was so affirming of what I quote unquote knew, but couldn't bring myself to actually admit. So it, I wish I could say I was shocked, but I wasn't. And there were still reasonably so there was a conversation in that diagnosis about palliative chemo, about doing a PET scan and seeing just the overall scope of how the cancer was. And it's, it's like the door of optimism was not locked. So there was still this part of me that was like, well, we don't really know what our options are. I mean, so I wish I could say I was shocked, but I wasn't. And there was like the, the door of optimism wasn't closed either. I mean, you'd think the, the writing was beyond on the wall at this point. It's very like human nature though, to like hope for a quote unquote miracle, especially in the early, early stages of. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say that I thought he was going to live. I don't think I did. It was just this one was there was no script. There was no, there was nothing to tie this to or attach it to, or nothing I'd ever been through before. I mean, it was completely in a new experience. And there was a conversation of maybe he'll live six months and surprise us all. Maybe we'll have a whole summer with him. So I think the, yeah. the hope and the optimism was not about him surviving this. That was quite clear. But there was a very much unknown, none of us knew how quickly it was going to go. And I, you know, my best friend, her mom died overnight last fall. Nobody even knew she was going to or close to and woke up the next morning and she was dead. They didn't get to have the three and a half weeks that my family got to have with my dad, having the conversations, sharing, acknowledging each other, being complete, just spending that kind of quality time together. You know, I don't really know specifically what it was like for my mom and my dad. I also, my mom has said some that 
she pretty much knew at some spiritual gut level how serious this all was from the December stroke. My mom's a deeply intuitive, connected human. She's also somebody who volunteered for hospice and has been with more than one, several friends and family members at the time of their death and through the end of life care. So this was not brand new territory for her by any means. I mean, including her own mother and my dad's mother, you know, being two of them. But, and when I look back, I mean, to be totally transparent, I sat in a plant medicine ceremony in February and had spiritual conversations with my dad. And he didn't say he was dying, but he did say how scared he was. And there was concern for taking care of my mother. And my mom and I had a conversation, I think in January, where she, I remember being upset with her that she was talking about him like he was dying. And I was like, we don't even know. And, you know, I was in this reactionary place and, and I can actually get that's life through a 42 year old's eyes. And she was speaking life through 75 year old's eyes and her life experience was talking and my life experience was talking. And I don't know really what it was like for my dad to face that in that moment. But my mom and I did talk about that. It really wasn't, it really wasn't real for him until that, like he was the most optimistic of all of us in there's going to be a way to deal with this. And I'll actually, you know, and then what's incredible is for that being the case, he moved into the grace of acceptance, not from a place of resignation, not like, Oh, I just have to accept this, but like literally like the grace and gratitude so fucking fast. It was unbelievable. Like of those 24 days, there were three where my dad was solemn and quiet and a little despondent. And I mean, a little, and the rest of the time, he oozed love and appreciation and gratitude literally up until his last breath. And there's a whole, like, that's not how everybody dies. And that's not right or wrong. And I had space for him to be pissed off or difficult to be around or, or whatever he had to go through, be checked out, not interact with literally. He didn't do that. Should we transition into talking about phase two? Yeah, I think I can. (laughs) That, 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 that part of the chat, that was way easier. The clinical yeah. part. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's like the diagnosis process is like, I can get fired up about it and there's a little righteousness in there and, you know, and like, that's all, but this, this is, this is a whole different ball game. So what would you like to know? Join us next time as I share about the intense and incredibly gratifying and profoundly difficult process of nursing my father to his death. There doesn't need to be but anything for you to say this morning. I can't hear you. (laughs) There doesn't need to be but anything for you to say this morning. Oh, oh, yeah. We can't actually read your thoughts, even though they're probably getting really pure and strong. (laughs) Or there aren't any. Or there aren't any. Not not very coherent thoughts, actually. Yeah. More like images and feelings and... (laughs) Mostly contentment. (laughs) 
I've never thought about this before, but I've thought a lot about how important it is when babies are born, how they're born, and the care we take, and the process that's naturally gone through, and there's very likely the same thing when people die. Mm -hmm. And since I've never been through that in this lifetime, like, I don't want to impose any of my stuff on your process. And so, if you want food, if you don't want food, (laughs) if you're ready to be done eating, if you're ready to be done with pills, (laughs) (laughs) and we have, all we gotta do is make a phone call and we can get liquid pain meds. Mm -hmm. And you may or may not be able to say what you want, and that's okay too, we're we're getting good at figuring it out. Yeah, but you sure are. <laughs> You're very tuned in to what will feel good. I don't even have, there's no molecule in me that wants to be anywhere else. <laughs> there just isn't. It's, I am completely content to be here. People ask me, well, what do you think? Or what's next? Or do you... Nope. <laughs> there is no next. There is just this. And, the, and this is is so complete. A little moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. And I remain just absolutely impressed by you. You're so gracious, and you're so sweet, and you're so open and so loving. It's really nice. (laughs) It's really impressive. Yeah, no kidding. Feels pretty good over here, too. Good job. Thank you to Kendra and my dad, Bob Rubenthal, for this incredible opportunity. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.